Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, a collection of sermons and lectures by Kevin Morris. Today we're starting a new series on Teaching Thursdays where we are going to be going through our first book of the Bible from start to finish, and we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter from the New Testament. I'm really excited to be starting this new series with you because 1 Peter is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I've spent a lot of time studying it in my life as a Christian, and I have taught on it several different times. So now to do so with you on the Better Bible Reading Podcast will be a real treat for me, and I hope it's beneficial for you. To get things started in our study, I'd like to share with you this week an introductory sermon that I did on 1 Peter, focusing on the first seven verses of the book because it sets the stage for Peter's main argument and theme that he covers in the book, and that is the idea of suffering as a Christian and understanding that our suffering, just like our salvation, is according to plan. So I hope this is a great encouragement to you and really whets your appetite for our future study of this book over the next several weeks. And thanks again for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Our sermon text for this morning is 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Here again the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as Peter later says, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Well, friends, it's always a delight to come here and proclaim the word of God to you all. I bring greetings from Ortega, and we certainly appreciate the fellowship we have with you all. And so thank you for having me again this morning. Our text in 1 Peter is especially relevant, and I want to set somewhat of a context in an unsuspected way uh, by calling your attention to the Puritan 
Jeremiah Burroughs. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jeremiah Burroughs. He is known for being a Puritan. He's known as a pastor, as a lecturer, but most famously, he's probably known for being one of the Westminster divines. He was part of that Westminster assembly uh, that gave us the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms. Well, today, if you were to uh, be familiar with him, it would probably be because most of his sermons have actually been kept and preserved and put into book form. And one such collection of sermons has a very Puritan-like title, uh, not because of length, but just by way of description, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In that book, he says this, God's ordinary course is that his people in this world should be in an afflicted condition. Now, I wonder, how many of you agree with that? Does, does, is there a foreign dialect when you hear that God's people, the ordinary course for God's people is that they would be in an afflicted condition? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound normal to you? Or is it hard for your ears? So I think for many in our broad evangelicalism in the West, that that is an antithetical statement. Consider how much we don't like affliction. Consider how much we put affliction and contentment at odds with each other, as if to say, if you're afflicted, there's no way you can be content. The key to contentment is to escape affliction at all costs. Consider the heresy of the prosperity gospel. Or consider maybe more of a tenable version of that in evangelicalism that says you at least need to be suspicious if you're afflicted. You must be sinning. There's no other way about it. Well, if you were to ask Job's friends... Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, you know, the the way that they come to Job in his affliction. And if Job were to say to them what Burroughs says, God's ordinary course is that his people in this world should be in an afflicted condition, they would suspect that you must be a wicked person to even utter such a statement. But what if that statement was worded slightly differently? What if it sounded something like this? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now that's not the words of Burroughs, that's the words of Peter, just a few chapters after our text this morning. Well, no doubt early Christianity knew something of the suffering condition to which we are regularly subjected to. And that includes Burroughs. You know the history of England when the Puritans wanted to rise up and have Orthodox Christianity properly represented in the country that they were regularly met with opposition. There was maybe some hope when England broke away from Rome and founded the Church of England, but then it looked too much like a halfway house between Roman Catholicism and proper Protestant Christianity, which the Puritans wanted. 
And they were regularly oppressed by the government, most of the time driven to exile, sometimes executed. Well, Burroughs was one of those driven to exile, lost his position. But during that time of affliction was not when Burroughs wrote these uh, sermons, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It was actually after things kind of cleared up for a while during the Commonwealth in England and He preached that set of sermons about contentment and affliction to the wealthiest congregation in England during a time of general peace. So we could say the message of contentment, the message of affliction, is actually given to an audience much like ourselves. Certainly there is political unrest. Certainly we understand the trying times in which we are in, but generally speaking, We're sitting here this morning at peace. We're sitting here this morning with a freedom to assemble, and we hear God's word without threat of death or exile. And I think that's all the more reason that we need to consider what affliction means, what trials mean for us as Christians. Now, my aim is not to encourage you by the end of this sermon to seek martyrdom. My aim is not to make you feel terrible about yourself for any peace or comfort which you enjoy presently. But my aim is rather to help you understand that trials for the Christian without qualification are according to God's plan. And that's good news for us. Well, let's now move to the text of Scripture this morning. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's a fascinating context which Peter gives us to consider ourselves, to identify ourselves as Christians. And he says this, elect exiles. Now, don't miss the wordplay, because this is somewhat of a contradiction of terms. Elect exiles. We could say it this way. God's people are the chosen, rejected people. Do you understand the tension of that phrase? There's a sense in which we are elect, we are chosen, we are accepted, we are grafted in, we are called to belong to God, and yet at the same time, we are exiles, cast aside, rejected. Such describes our relationship with God and with the world. To be elect, to belong to God, to enjoy union with Christ, is to be at tension with this world. This world, I don't know if you know this, but a friendly reminder, this world is not our home. Where, in a sense, travelers, sojourners, we are visitors. Even the Lord Jesus describes us through the words of Paul, as ambassadors for Christ. We know what an ambassador is. An ambassador normally travels to a distant country representing the country to which they belong to. 
But that is our position in this world. Born here, but no longer belonging to this system. We are exiles. But the good news of that, of course, is the fact that we belong to God. We are His elect. And notice the qualifier here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We see a Trinitarian framework of salvation. If you are elect, it is because the working of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on your behalf. And we see this. The foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Now let's take a look now, very briefly, at the first of three ironies that Peter uses in order to help us understand the way in which the Christian life should be uh, properly appreciated. I'm not going to deal with all of these, but let's consider the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, if you're somebody that at least likes to do word studies, maybe you don't know Greek, maybe you just like to get a better sense of an understanding of what the Bible says, you would look at foreknowledge and you would realize that the transliteration into English would be designated the word which we have prognosis. Now, prognosis, if we were to visit a doctor, you know the difference between a prognosis and a diagnosis, right? A prognosis is essentially a guess. A prognosis is a guess of what the outcome will be. If you have some kind of an ailment, you ask the doctor, What's the prognosis? What are we looking at? What's, what's going to happen here? What do you think? Well, as a diagnosis is really an assessment of the condition itself. But yet the word here is foreknowledge, prognosis. And if you were to ask somebody like John Wesley, or ask somebody that is in a more of a non-reformed uh, expression, they would define foreknowledge in that way. Sort of like a guess. As if God, you've, you've heard it before, God looks down the, what's the phrase, the corridors of time. God looks down and He sees what man will do. He sees how we will make our choices, how we will embrace or reject. And then based on that knowledge, He then moves to decide and act on behalf of it. Now, I would really like to designate this more as a crystal ball theology. When you think about the Wizard of Oz, where the witch is in her tower. She's looking at the crystal ball. She's analyzing the choices of Dorothy and her friends, and then she responds with her action. Well, this is really what that idea of foreknowledge ends up getting us to, and such is a wrong view of God, because it doesn't do anything in dealing with His being all-knowing, all-powerful, and the fact that He foreordains all which will come to pass, irrespective of us. Now, how will we deal with this word and so we can escape such a strange view of elect exiles? If it's according to this foreknowledge, after all. Well, another passage we could go to would be Acts 2.23, where the same word is used, the only other time in the New Testament. And when Luke writes Acts 2.23, he defines the work of the cross and all of the events that correspond to it as according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it's not as if foreknowledge is the way we would use it to describe a doctor making an educated guess. 
or working with the best evidence available. Instead, foreknowledge is dealing with the act of God, the definite plan. It's a play on words, we could say, because foreknowledge for God is qualified by all of his perfect attributes. It is not as if God associates himself way over here, looks what we're going to do way over here, and then works in response of it. Instead, he looks at the full completion, the full accomplishment, and the full application of his salvation for us. Notice who the key players are, if you will, in this passage. It's the Trinity. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is looking at every angle of his work on our behalf not our response or not our choice, primarily. This is good news because it qualifies what it means to be elect. It really gives us the reason why Peter turns around and responds to this truth in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This work of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God's, verse 3, causing us to be born again. It is God's work on our behalf. But notice the way that he connects these in verse 2. The people which he describes, he says, are in their status according to the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Christ. Now, we readily agree with the fact, hopefully, as Reformed Christians, that we understand that salvation is a work of God. We understand that salvation is God's work on our behalf, even in some ways in spite of us. But do you make that same association, not with your elect status, but with your exiled status? Because Peter associates those two together. You are not merely elect, you are an elect exile, according to God's work of salvation. Do you associate those together in this way? Verse 3, as I said, Peter wants us to realize this indeed is the case. And not only is this true, so we should just deal with it, but it's true, so we should be excited about it. Blessed be, a doxological statement, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now the content of verses 1 and 2, what we would call a reformed understanding of election and salvation, is not so we can win Facebook debates. It is in so we can bless God as the proper response of his redeemed people. That is the application, after all, in verse 3. Peter responds that this is mercy, friends. This is God's mercy upon us. You consider the context which he uses a phrase such as God causing us to be born again. Remember when Peter was with Jesus during his earthly ministry, they had a visitor come to them, Nicodemus. In John 3, and they had this conversation about the work of Christ, about what it means to be saved. And Peter says to him, or Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And Peter says, that which our Lord described is what has occurred to us 
He has caused us to be born again. Now notice the rest of this verse. Born again to what? What is the aim? What's the purpose? What is the design of our being born again? To, unto, towards a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, let's go back to our broad evangelicalism example. If you were to ask the question, why should Christians be hopeful? I am almost sure that the answer would be because he died on the cross for my sins. I'm sure that would be the answer. Or we could actually ask it a different way. What is the gospel? What's the good news? That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Now, I'm not going to tell you that that's not true. Because I don't want to get stoned to death. I'd like to leave at peace. But I am going to tell you, that's only half of the story. In fact, that's not even the emphasis. Look to the book of Acts. Read all of the sermons. What is the emphasis? The resurrection. The death on the cross means absolutely nothing if there is no resurrection. Doesn't Paul say we are of all men most to be pitied if there isn't what? A resurrection. If Jesus hasn't been raised. And this is Peter's point here. What is the reason for a hope to be living, to be alive, to be efficacious? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is not the fact only that he died. It's the fact that he is alive. Even now. That causes our hope to be living. And it's a correspondence too. As long as Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. Our hope is living because he is living. That's the good news, friends. But that's not all he says either. What is the relation of this hope? What are we hopeful about? Our hope is to be aimed, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now here's the second irony. The first irony was foreknowledge, somewhat of a play on words. Now the second one, inheritance. Inheritance, in human terms, is predicated upon a death. In fact, if we want to sound like greedy people who are breaking the commandment that we read about earlier this morning, we would say something to the degree of an inheritance appreciated and longed for is only going to be realized when somebody finally dies and gets out of the way. If they would just get to the last, you know, get to the finishing line, cross the finishing line, then that whole inheritance is mine. The focus is death in human terms. But it's the opposite for us. The focus is not on death. It's on life. It's on the fact that we are Christians enjoying eternal, never-ending, never-ceasing, not temporal, not a modified sense of existence, but eternal life. Because Jesus lives, he will never die again. He lives forevermore. So we can say, This life of Christ is the hope of our inheritance. It is based on a life, not a 
death. And notice the way that he describes this. He describes the inheritance as something which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. These are different from the inheritance that we want in this life. Any kind of inheritance you could possibly conceive of will one day rot away. The grass will wither, the flowers will fall. Anything that we long for in this life will end up ceasing to exist. And yet this inheritance is not like that. This inheritance will never perish. This inheritance can never be defiled. It can never fade away. It is in fact kept in heaven for you, friends. And we could say this, it's not gold. It's not stuff. It's not heavenly stuff. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is alive, never to fade away, never to perish, never to be defiled. So is our hope. So is our inheritance. We long for Christ himself. Kept in heaven for you. Now, note the definitive wording there. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance concept of our salvation has a front end and a back end to give us true assurance. The front end is what we've already read, verses 1 and 2, and even verse 3. The front end is God's determination to save us. The work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to rescue us from this world, to elect us, to belong to Him, to cause us to be born again, as Peter says. But then there's a back end that that event, that that work, that that design and intent of God is guarded all the way through to the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's certainly a sense for us as Christians in which we have been saved, we're continuing to be saved, and one day we will be saved. And all of those are true. But God's design is a fully encompassing work of salvation. So to describe salvation means a once-for-all work of God that can never fade away. The salvation which the Bible speaks of is eternal. That's why it's called eternal life. It can never be taken away. It can never be lost. And frankly, we could end the sermon here this morning. We could end it here and emphasize on the assurance of salvation. We could actually make a catechism question based on Peter's description here. Because notice what he says there in verse 5. What is the guarding that God does on our behalf? What is it that he gives to us? What is it that we exercise in order for this to remain true? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Faith is the emphasis. At every turn of our salvation, faith is the emphasis. So we could ask really a catechism question such as this. Plain and simple, how does God guard us in and our inheritance in this life? And the answer would be, by faith. That's the answer. However, we're reading verses 1 through 7, not only 1 through 5. This is not the whole argument. 
We have dealt with the election. We have not dealt with the exiled status. We have another thing to consider in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says this, In this you rejoice. What we've just considered is occasion for rejoicing. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Question one, how is it that God guards us and our inheritance all the way to the end? The answer would be by faith. Now, here's the second question we could make. How does God preserve our faith? And the answer that Peter gives is trials. Now, I want want that to sink in for a moment because this is the third irony. The word trials. The likelihood that modern man would agree with Burroughs' argument earlier on that affliction is ordinary for the Christian. Or to say it in the words of Peter, that affliction should not be considered as strange or surprising. is about as likely as agreeing with the notion that God preserves our faith by trials. Now why is that? Well, it's because... Our culture, our society, describes trials as being antithetical to faith. We suppose that trials will lead to the compromise of our faith. We worry about such words as what Jesus uttered in the Olivet Discourse. Those who endure to the end will be saved. As if it is a warning that you might indeed be saved... But then you don't endure to the end, so then you won't ultimately be saved. And we say, those kind of trials that you're describing, let's keep them far away from me. Because i got to preserve this faith, after all. And it's not going to work out very well for me if these trials get close and cozied up to me. But friends, we must appreciate, we must come to terms with the fact That the Christian life described here in our text this morning is a life that is tested by fire. Now you know the function of a crucible, don't you? This testing language, this fire language, we see it indeed in the book of Proverbs as well in the Old Testament. A crucible is used for many different reasons. One reason of which, in order to get to the final point of which you're putting in the metal, it's to burn away and separate the impurities. So that what you end up with is a pure metal for proper use. We could say for holy use. This idea is what we have with God's proposition of His will for us in trials and afflictions. If it's true that God's design, that God's plan of salvation is as definite is as consistent in the fact of us being saved as the circumstance of trials that come into our lives, then we could actually conclude the opposite of what we hear so many times or what we're tempted to say ourselves. Trials do not compromise our faith. 
That is not the way in which trials are described in the Bible. We could actually reverse Jesus' warning and say that it's not only a warning that those who endure to the end will be saved, but it's also a proposition. Those who are saved will endure to the end. And such is true because there's a close connection here between trial and salvation, both of which are according to God's plan, both of which have a good, fully encompassed design and intent by Him. This theology of trials is not popular, but it's only recently become a foreign sensation when we think about the idea of trials and hardship and all of the rest. Luther, for one, says this. Of course, you know his theology of the cross. When he describes the work of trials in the life of a Christian, he says this. Trials, they teach you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, and how comforting God's word is. Now, if this indeed is our view of trials, then we understand the goodness of them. We understand the design of them. But we have to understand them that way. And oftentimes we don't. But this language by Peter that our faith is tested by fire. Our faith is indeed preserved. It is not so that our faith would be burned out by the trial, but that the impurities that want to attach themselves to our faith would be burned away, that we might have a pure faith, and even a more pure faith than what we had to begin with. And there's a correspondence, even back to the beginning of this passage. Just as the crucible sets apart the impurities from the pure metal, so our trials further set us apart or sanctify us unto God. That's exactly what our salvation is. Go back to verse 2. In the sanctification of the Spirit, we are given the Holy Spirit that we might be set apart from the world. What's another way we could describe that? As being exiled from the world to belong to God. That's the language of sanctification, set apart for holy use. And this is what God does when he brings along a trial or a grieving test. And so our faith would be set apart even further for holy use unto God. So it is the preserving of the faith. It is not the destruction or the compromise of the faith. God maintains us by faith, and God maintains our faith by the trials He brings. This is the according-to-plan nature of our salvation. You can't describe salvation in a fallen world being called out from darkness into light without understanding the dynamic that that creates. It means we no longer belong to this world. It means that there is indeed tension. But it also means so long as we're in and subjected to a world, as our confession says, that is in a state of sin and misery, we shouldn't be surprised in a world of sin and misery when sin and misery come our way. It comes with the territory, we could say. Well, the passage we read earlier this morning 
from Job 36 was when Elihu came along and rebuked Job and his three friends. Why did he rebuke them? It's because none of them had a proper assessment of God's design of afflictions. Some of them said they would fit in very well with the prosperity theology. They said, Job, you're in a state of affliction, therefore you must be a wicked sinner. In fact, you deserve far worse than you're getting. And we could agree with that in some ways if we maintain the fact that we still have sin that, we're, that we wrestle with, people know not yet glorified. There is a sense in which we have been given great favor and we have far more than we deserve. But there's another sense in which we understand trials are not a one-to-one retribution correspondence to you are a wicked person, therefore this is in your life. If you weren't so wicked, this wouldn't be in your life. That's antithetical to the fact that we are exiles according to God's design of salvation. So Elihu comes along and says, as we read, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction. That is to say, there's a salvific dynamic to affliction. Affliction for the Christian, affliction for God's people, is the very circumstance in which God delivers us. Not necessarily a saving work, but certainly a sanctifying work. God only ever has good intents and purposes for any evil that befalls us. How do we know that? Well, because our Savior, which we belong to, was subjected to the greatest evil ever witnessed in human history. The very circumstance which Luke described as the definite plan and foreknowledge of God which brought about the greatest good ever. We are beneficiaries to a great circumstance of evil, and we enjoy it as the greatest good. And in all that, God still punishes evil. God still rescues the godly. God never leaves any stone unturned to which somebody could raise their hand and object that he did something wrong or dealt with it improperly. This is God's wonderful design in affliction. The very circumstance that looks to be our demise is the circumstance in which he delivers us and further sanctifies us and gives us an even greater appreciation and love for him. So what's the chief end, we could say? What's the chief end of our trials? Verse 7. So that the tested Genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to stay awake to the normalcy of trials, the familiarity that we must have with trials. As I said a couple chapters later, Peter tells us, don't think of trials as strange. Don't think of them as weird. Don't think of them as antithetical to your faith, but instead understand that they are as according to plan as the preservation of your soul is. God preserves our faith by these trials. They correspond to his plan. 
And they help us to have contentment in God. They help us to rest in God even further. We can make a summary statement from a book such like Pilgrim's Progress, and we could say something like this, and I think the Bible would certainly agree with it, that the road to Mount Zion passes directly through the valley of the shadow of death. If we remember that, we won't have such a hard time dealing with trials as they come our way. So friends, it may indeed be in this day and age in which we live that trials could come by legislation. Trials could come designed to stop the mouths of God's people. But let us say along with Scripture, let God be true and every man a liar. Trials may come by a government's growing animosity to this assembly of saints and others across our nation and world, but we must obey God rather than men. Trials may come from within, from wolves seeking not to spare the sheep, but we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And trials may come from without, from that cursed environment of sin and misery which we are subjected to. But friends, let us be encouraged to redeem the time, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an invitation for you to cry out to Him that He might save you. This is an invitation that you might understand That the one who saves us is also the one that never looks at a circumstance in this life and says, that was not supposed to happen. That was beyond my control. That was oversight on my part. That should have been forethought, but it was actually afterthought. Our God never says that. What happens in this world the goodness that he brings about is all according to plan as much as our salvation is. So friends, trials may indeed come, but my encouragement to you is the encouragement of Peter that when they come, may they be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And may God help us to think that way every day. Let's pray. O Lord, medicine tastes terrible at times. But let us receive the medicine of your word to think this way. Not to guilt ourselves into feeling bad. Not to cause opposition to rise up in our own hearts. But to simply do what the Bible calls us to do, and that is to renew our minds according to your will. And this passage certainly reveals your will. It reveals the if necessary element of trials. But more than that, it also reveals to us the good design of trials and the proper response in the midst of trials. But Lord, certainly this 
along with our salvation, is a work that you bring about by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So help us to remember that this attitude of contentment, this attitude of resting in your will, is also a work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our hearts. Help us to acknowledge the fact that we can't think this way without your help. And help us to have the sober reminder that it is much easier to think this way when it's happening to somebody else and not us. So may we have good saints that come alongside us when it is our turn that our faith might be tested, that it might be further sanctified and preserved to remind us of your good intentions, of your loving hand, of your tender mercies upon us in trials. And help us to remember that they will all one day result in joy inexpressible. They will result in praise and glory to you. We will look at all we go through in this life and conclude that you are good in all you do. Help us in this, O God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.